Section 16 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 16, Chapter 5, Arianism, by M. H. Quadkin. Here was a deadlock. All parties had failed. The Anomoeans were active enough, but pure Arianism was hopelessly discredited throughout the empire. The Nicenes had Egypt and the West, but they could not overcome the court and Asia. The Eastern Semi-Arians were the strongest party, but such men of violence could not close the strife. In this deadlock nothing was left but specious charity and colourless indefiniteness and this was the plan of the new Homoean party, formed by Acacius and Eudoxius in the east, Ursatius and Valens in the west. A general council was decided on, but it was divided into two, the westerns to meet at Ariminum, the easterns at Seleucia in Cilicia, the headquarters of the army then operating against the Isaurians. Meanwhile, parties began to group themselves afresh. The Anomoeans went with the Homoeans, from whom alone they could expect any favour, while the Semi-Arians drew closer to the Nicenes, and were welcomed by Hilary of Poitiers in his conciliatory De Synodis. The next step was a small meeting of Homoean and Semi-Arian leaders, held in the Emperor's presence on Pentecost Eve, 22nd May, 359, to draw up a creed to be laid before the councils. The dated creed, or fourth of Sirmium, is conservative in its appeals to scripture, in its solemn reverence for the Lord, in its rejection of essence, usia, as not found in scripture, and its insistence on the mystery of the eternal generation. But its central clause gave a decisive advantage to the Homoeans. We say that the Son is like the Father in all things as the scriptures say and teach. Even the Anomoeans could sign this like the Father, as the Scriptures say, and no further, and we find very little likeness taught in Scripture. Like the Father, if you will, but not like God, for no creature can be. Like the Father, certainly, but not in essence, for likeness, which is not identity, implies difference. Or, in other words, likeness is a question of degree. Of these three replies, the first is fair, the third perfectly sound. The reception of the creed was hostile in both councils. The westerns at Ariminum rejected it, deposed the Homoean leaders, and ratified the Nicene creed. In the end, however, they accepted the Sirmian, but with the addition of a stringent series of anathemas against Arianism, which Valens accepted for the moment. The easterns at Seleucia rejected it likewise, deposed the Homoean leaders, and ratified the Lucianic creed. Both sides sent deputies to the emperor, as had been arranged, and after much pressure these deputies signed a revision of the dated creed on the night of 31st December 359. The Homoeans now saw their way to final victory. By throwing over the Anomoeans and condemning their leader Aetheus, they were able to enforce the prohibition of the semi-Arian Homoeusion, and then it only remained to revise the dated creed again, for a council held at Constantinople in February 360, 
and send the semi-Aryan leaders into exile. The Homo-Aryan domination never extended beyond the Alps. Gaul was firmly Nicene, and Constantius could do nothing there after the mutiny at Paris in January 360 had made Julian independent of him. The few Western Aryans soon died out. But in the East, the Homo-Aryan power lasted nearly twenty years. Its strength lay in its appeal to the moderate men who were tired of strife, and to the confused thinkers who did not see that a vital question was at issue. The dated creed seemed reverent and safe, and its defects would not have been easy to see if the Anomoeans had not made them plain. But the position of parties was greatly changed since 356. First, Hilary of Poitiers had done something to bring together conservatives and Nicenes. Then Athanasius took up the work in his own De Synodis. It is a noble venture of friendship to his old conservative enemies. The semi-Aryans, or many of them, accepted of the essence, ectis usias, and the Nicene anathemas, and doubted only of the homoousion. Such men, says he, are not to be treated as enemies, but reasoned with as brethren who differ from us only in the use of a word which sums up their own teaching as well as ours. When they confess that the Lord is a true Son of God and not a creature, they grant all that we are contending for. Their own homoiousion without of the essence does not shut out Arianism, but the two together amount to homoousion. Moreover, homoiousion is illogical, for likeness is of properties and qualities, whereas the essence must be the same or different, so that the word rather suggests Arianism, whereas homoousion shuts it out effectually. If they accept our doctrine, Sooner or later, they will find that they cannot refuse its necessary safeguard. But if Nicenes and Semi-Aryans drew together, so did Homoeans and Anomoeans. Any ideas of conciliating Nicene support were destroyed by the exile of Milesius, the new bishop of Antioch, for preaching a sermon carefully modelled on the dated creed, but substantially Nicene in doctrine. A schism arose at Antioch, and henceforth the leaders of the Homoeans were practically Arians. The mutiny at Paris implied a civil war, but just as it was beginning, Constantius died at Mopsucrene beneath Mount Taurus, 3rd November 361, and Julian remained sole emperor. We are not here concerned with the general history of his reign, or even with his policy towards the Christians, only with its bearing on Arianism. In general, he held to the toleration of the Edict of Milan. The Christians are not to be persecuted, only deprived of special privileges, but the emperor's favour must be reserved for the worshippers of the gods. So the administration was unfriendly to the Christians, and left occasional outrages unpunished, or dismissed them with a thin reproof. But these were no great matters, for the Christians were now too strong to be lynched at pleasure. Julian's chief endeavour was to put new life into heathenism, and in this the heathens themselves hardly took him seriously. His only act of definite persecution was the edict near the end of his reign which forbade the Christians to teach the classics, and this is disapproved by the cool and impartial heathen Ammianus. Every blow struck by Julian against the Christians fell first on the Homoeans whom Constantius had left in power, and the reaction he provoked against Greek culture threatened the philosophical postulates of Arianism. But Julian cared little for the internal quarrels of the Christians, 
and only broke his rule of contemptuous impartiality when he recognized one greater than himself in the detestable athanasius before long an edict recalled the exiled bishops though it did not replace them in their churches if others were in possession it was not julian's business to turn them out this was toleration but julian had a malicious hope of still further embroiling the confusion if the christians were left to themselves they would quarrel like beasts he got a few scandalous wranglings but in the main he was mistaken the christians only closed their ranks against the common enemy the arians also were sound christians in this matter blind old maris of chalcedon came and cursed him to his face back to their cities came the survivors of the exiled bishops no longer travelling in pomp and circumstance to their noisy councils but bound on the nobler errand of seeking out their lost or scattered flocks it was time to resume hilary's interrupted work of conciliation semi-arian violence had discredited in advance the new conservatism at seleucia but athanasius had things more in his favour for julian's reign had not only sobered partisanship but left a clear field for the strongest moral force in christendom to assert itself and this force was with the nicenes athanasius reappeared at alexandria twenty second february three hundred sixty two and held a small council there before julian drove him out again it was decided first that arians who came over to the nicene side were to retain their rank on condition of accepting the nicene council none but the chiefs and active defenders of arianism being reduced to lay communion then after clearing up some misunderstandings of east and west and trying to settle the schism at antioch by inducing the old nicenes who at present had no bishop to accept milesius they took in hand two new questions of doctrine one was the divinity of the holy spirit its reality was acknowledged except by the arians but did it amount to co-essential deity that was still an open question but now that attention was fully directed to the subject it appeared from scripture that the theory of eternal distinctions in the divine nature must either be extended to the holy spirit or abandoned athanasius took one course the animoians the other while the semi-arians tried to make a difference between the lord's deity and that of the holy spirit and this gradually became the chief obstacle to their union with the nicenes the other subject of debate was the new system of apollinarius of laodicea the most suggestive of all the ancient heresies apollinarius was the first who fairly faced the difficulty that if all men are sinners and the lord was not a sinner he cannot have been truly man apollinarius replied that sin lies in the weakness of the human spirit and accounted for the sinlessness of christ by putting in its place the divine logos and adding the important statement that if the human spirit was created in the image of the logos genesis one twenty eight christ would not be the less human but the more so for the difference the spirit in christ was human spirit although divine further the logos which in christ was human spirit was eternal apart then from the incarnation the logos was archetypal man as well as god so that the incarnation was not simply an expedient to get rid of sin but the historic revelation of that which was latent in the logos from eternity the logos and man are not alien beings but joined in their inmost nature and in a real sense each is incomplete without the other 
Suggestive as this is, Apollinarius reaches no true incarnation. Against him it was decided that the incarnation implied a human soul as well as a human body, a decision which struck straight enough at the Arians, but quite missed the triple division of body, soul and spirit, 1 Thessalonians, verse 23, on which Apollinarius based his system. Athanasius was exiled again almost at once. Julian's anger was kindled by the news that he had baptised some heathen ladies at Alexandria, but his work remained. At Antioch, indeed, it was marred by Lucifer of Calaris, who would have nothing to do with Milesius, and consecrated Paulinus as bishop for the old Nicenes. So the schism continued, and henceforth the rising Nicene party of Pontus and Asia was divided by this personal question from the older Nicenes of Egypt and the West. But upon the whole, the lenient policy of the council was a great success. Bishop after bishop gave in his adhesion to the Nicene faith. Friendly Samarians came in like Cyril of Jerusalem, old conservatives followed, and at last, in Jovian's time, the arch-enemy Acacius himself gave in his signature. Even creeds were remodelled in all directions in a Nicene sense, as at Jerusalem and Antioch and in Cappadocia and Mesopotamia. True, the other parties were not idle. The Homoean coalition was even more unstable than the Eusebian, and broke up of itself as soon as opinion was free. One party favoured the Anamoeans, another drew nearer to the Nicenes, while the Semi-Arians completed the confusion by confirming the Seleucian decisions and reissuing the Lucianic creed. But the main current set in a Nicene direction, and the Nicene faith was rapidly winning its way to victory when the process was thrown back for nearly twenty years by Julian's death in Persia, 26th June, 363. Julian's death seemed to leave the empire in the gift of four barbarian generals, but while they were debating, a few of the soldiers outside hailed a favourite named Jovian as emperor. The cry was taken up, and in a few minutes the young officer found himself the successor of Augustus. Jovian was a decided Christian, though his personal character did no credit to the gospel. But his religious policy was one of genuine toleration. If Athanasius was graciously received at Antioch, the Arians were told with scant courtesy that they could hold meetings as they pleased at Alexandria. So all parties went on consolidating themselves. The Anomoeans had been restive since the condemnation of Aetius at Constantinople, but it was not till now that they lost hope of the Homoeans and formed an organised sect. But all these movements came to an end with the sudden death of Jovian, 16th to 17th February, 364. This time the generals chose, and they chose the Pannonian Valentinian for emperor. A month later he assigned the east from Thrace to his brother Valens. Valentinian was a good soldier and little more, though he could honour learning and carry forward the reforming work of Constantine. His religious policy was toleration. If he refused to displace the few Arian bishops he found in possession, he left the churches free to choose Nicene successors. So the West soon recovered from the strife which Constantius had introduced. It was otherwise in the East. Valens was a weaker character, timid and inert, but not inferior to his brother in scrupulous care for the interests of his subjects. No soldier, but more or less good at finance. For a while events continued to develop naturally. The Homoean bishops held their sees, but their influence was fast declining. 
The Anamoeans were forming a schism on one side, the Nicenes were recovering power on the other. On both sides, the simpler doctrines were driving out the compromises. It was time for even the semi-Aryans to bestir themselves. A few years before they were beyond question the majority in the East, but this was not so certain now. The Nicenes had made a great advance since the Council of Anxira, and were now less conciliatory. Lucifer had compromised them in one direction, Apollinarius in another, and even Marcellus had never been disavowed. But the chief cause of suspicion to the semi-Aryans was now the advance of the Nicenes to a belief in the deity of the Holy Spirit. It was some time before Valens had a policy to declare. He was only a catechumen, perhaps cared little for the questions before his elevation, and inherited no assured position like Constantius. It was some time before he fell into the hands of the homoean Eudoxius of Constantinople, a man of experience and learning, whose mild prudence gave him just the help he needed. In fact, a homoean policy was really the easiest for the moment. Heathenism had failed in Julian's hands, and an Anamoean course was even more hopeless, while the Nicenes were still a minority outside Egypt. The only alternative was to favour the semi-Aryans, and this too was full of difficulties. Upon the whole, the Homoeans were still the strongest party in 365. They were in possession of the churches and had astute leaders, and their doctrine had not yet lost its attraction for the quiet men who were tired of controversy. In the spring of 365, an imperial rescript commanded the municipalities to drive out from their cities the bishops who had been exiled by Constantius and restored by Julian. At Alexandria, the populace declared that the rescript did not apply to Athanasius, whom Julian had not restored, and raised such dangerous riots that the matter had to be referred back to Valens. Then came the revolt of Procopius, who seized Constantinople, and very nearly displaced Valens. Athanasius was restored, and could not safely be disturbed again. Then, after the Procopian revolt, came the Gothic War, which kept Valens occupied till 369, and before he could return to church affairs, he had lost his best adviser, for Eudoxius of Constantinople was ill-replaced by the rash Demophilus. The Homoian party was the last hope of Arianism. The original doctrine of Arius had been decisively rejected at Nicaea, the Eusebian coalition was broken up by the Sirmian Manifesto, and if the Homoian Union also failed, its failure meant the fall of Arianism. Now the weakness of the Homoian power is shown by the growth of a new Nicene party in the most Arian province of the empire. Cappadocia was a country district, yet Julian found it incorrigibly Christian, and we hear very little of heathenism from Basil. But it was a stronghold of Arianism, and here was formed the alliance which decided the fate of Arianism. Serious men like Meletius had only been attracted to the side of the Homoeans by their professions of reverence for the person of the Lord, and began to look back to the Nicene Council, when it appeared that Eudoxius and his friends were practically Arians after all. Of the old conservatives also, there were many who felt that the semi-Aryan position was unsound, and yet could find no satisfaction in the indefinite doctrine professed at court. Thus the Homoian domination was threatened with a double secession. If the two groups of malcontents could form a union with each other, and with the older Nicenes of Egypt and the West, 
they would be much the strongest of the parties. This was the policy of the man who was now coming to the front of the Nicene leaders. Basil of Caesarea, the Cappadocian Caesarea, was a disciple of the Athenian schools and a master of heathen eloquence and learning, and man of the world enough to secure the friendly interest of men of all sorts. His connections lay among the old conservatives, though he had been a decided opponent of Arianism since 360. He succeeded to the bishopric of Caesarea in 370. The crisis was near. Valence moved eastward in 371, reaching Caesarea in time for the great midwinter festival of Epiphany, 372. Many of the lesser bishops yielded, but threats and blandishments were thrown away on their metropolitan, and when Valence himself and Basil met face to face, the emperor was overawed. More than once the order was prepared for his exile, but it was never issued. Valence went forward on his journey, leaving behind a princely gift for Basil's poorhouse. Thenceforth he fixed his quarters at Antioch, till the disasters of the Gothic War called him back to Europe in 378. Armed with spiritual power, which in some sort extended over Galatia and Armenia, Basil was now free to labour at his plan. Homoian malcontents formed the nucleus of the League, but old conservatives came in, and Athanasius gave his patriarchal blessing to the scheme. But the difficulties were enormous. The League was full of jealousies. Athanasius might recognise the orthodoxy of Miletius, but others almost went the length of banning all who had ever been Arians. Others again were lukewarm or sunk in worldliness, while the West stood aloof. The confessors of 355 were mostly gathered to their rest, and the Church of Rome cared little for troubles that were not likely to reach herself. Nor was Basil quite the man for the work. His courage, indeed, was indomitable. He ruled Cappadocia from a sickbed, and bore down opposition by sheer force of will, and to this he joined an ascetic fervour which secured the devotion of his friends, and often the respect of his enemies. But we miss the lofty self-respect of Athanasius. The ascetic is usually too full of his own purposes to feel sympathy with others, or even to feign it like a diplomatist. Basil had worldly prudence enough to dissemble his belief in the Holy Spirit, not enough to shield his nearest friends from his imperious temper. Small wonder if the great scheme met with many difficulties. The declining years of Athanasius were spent in peace. Heathenism was still a power at Alexandria, but the Arians were nearly extinct. One of his last public acts was to receive a confession presented on behalf of Marcellus, who was still living in extreme old age at Ancyra. It was a sound confession so far as it went, and though Athanasius did not agree with Marcellus, he had never thought his errors vital, so he accepted it, refusing once again to sacrifice the old companion of his exile. It was nobly done, but it did not conciliate Basil. The school of Marcellus expired with him, and if Apollinarius was forming another, he was at any rate a resolute enemy of Arianism. Meanwhile, the churches of the East seemed in a state of universal dissolution. Disorder under Constantius became confusion worse confounded under Valence. The exiled bishops were so many centres of strife, and personal quarrels had full scope. When, for example, Basil's brother Gregory was expelled from Nyssa by a riot got up by Anthemus of Tiana, he took refuge under the eyes of Anthemus at Douara, where another riot had driven out the Arian bishop. Creeds were in the same confusion. The Homoeans had no consistent principle beyond the rejection of technical terms. 
Some of their bishops were substantially Nicenes, while others were thoroughgoing Anomoeans. There was room for all in the happy family of Demophilus. Church history records no clearer period of decline than this. The descent from Athanasius to Basil is plain, from Basil to Cyril it is rapid. The victors of Constantinople are but the epigoni of a mighty contest. Athanasius passed away in 373, and Alexandria became the prey of Arian violence. The deliverance came suddenly, and in the confusion of the greatest disaster that had ever yet befallen Rome. When the Huns came up from the Asiatic steppes, the Goths sought refuge beneath the shelter of the Roman eagles. But the greed and peculations of Roman officials drove them to revolt, and when Valens himself, with the whole army of the East, encountered them near Hadrianople, 9th August, 378, his defeat was overwhelming. Full two-thirds of the Roman army perished in the slaughter, and the emperor himself was never heard of more. The blow was crushing. For the first time since the days of Gallienus, the empire could place no army in the field. The care of the whole world now rested on the western emperor, Gratian, the son of Valentinian, a youth of nineteen. Gratian was a zealous Christian, and as a western he held the Nicene faith. His first step was to proclaim religious liberty in the east, except for Anamoeans and Fatinians, a small sect supposed to have pushed the doctrine of Marcellus too far. As toleration was still the general law of the empire, though Valens might have exiled individual bishops, the gain of the rescript fell almost entirely to the Nicenes. The exiles found little difficulty in resuming the government of their flocks, or even in sending missions to the few places where the Arians were strong, like that undertaken by Gregory of Nantziansus to Constantinople. The semi-Arians were divided. Numbers of them joined the Nicenes, while the rest took an independent position. Thus, the Homoian power in the provinces collapsed of itself, and almost without a struggle, before it was touched by persecution. Gratian's next step was to share his heavy burden with a colleague. The new emperor came from the far west of Corca near Segovia, and to him was entrusted the Gothic War, and with it the government of all the provinces east of Sirmium. Theodosius was therefore a western and a Nicene, with a full measure of Spanish courage and intolerance. The war was not very dangerous the Goths could do nothing with their victory, and Theodosius was able to deal with the church long before it ended. A dangerous illness early in 380 led to his baptism by Acholius of Thessalonica, and this was the natural signal for a more decided policy. A law dated 27th February 380 commanded all men to follow the Nicene doctrine, committed by the Apostle Peter to the Romans, and now professed by Damasus of Rome and Peter of Alexandria and threatened heretics with temporal punishment. In this, he seems to abandon Constantine's test of orthodoxy by subscription to a creed, returning to Aurelian's requirement of communion with the chief bishops of Christendom. But the mention of St. Peter, and the choice both of Rome and Alexandria, are enough to show that he was still a stranger to the state of parties in the East. Theodosius made his formal entry into Constantinople 24th November 380 and at once required the bishop either to accept the Nicene faith or to leave the city. Demophilus honourably refused to give up his heresy, and adjourned his services to the suburbs. But the mob of Constantinople was Arian, and their stormy demonstrations when the Cathedral of the Twelve Apostles was given up to Gregory of Nazianzus made Theodosius waver. Not for long. A second edict, in January 381, 
forbade all heretical assemblies inside cities and ordered the churches everywhere to be given up to the Nicenes. Thus was Arianism put down as it had been set up by the civil power. Nothing remained but to clear away the wrecks of the contest. Once more an imperial summons went forth for a council of the eastern bishops to meet at Constantinople in May 381. It was a sombre gathering. Even the conquerors can have had no more hopeful feeling than that of satisfaction to see the end of the long contest. Only 150 bishops were present, none from the west of Thessalonica. The semi-Arians, however, mustered 36 under Eleusius of Sitzikus. Militius of Antioch presided, and the Egyptians were not invited to the earlier sittings, or at least were not present. Theodosius was no longer neutral, as between the old and new Nicenes. After ratifying the choice of Gregory of Nancyansus as Bishop of Constantinople, the next move was to sound the semi-Arians. There was still a strong party beyond the Bosphorus, so that their friendship was important. But Eleusius was not to be tempted. However he might oppose the Anemoeans, he could not forgive the Nicenes their doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Those of the semi-Arians who were willing to join the Nicenes had already done so, and the rest were obstinate. They withdrew from the council and gave up their churches like the Arians. Whatever jealousies might divide the conquerors, the contest with Arianism was now at an end. Pontus and Syria were still divided from Rome and Egypt on the question of Militius, and there were germs of future trouble in the disposition of Alexandria to look to Rome for help against the upstart sea of Constantinople. But against Arianism the council was united. Its first canon is a solemn ratification of the Nicene Creed in its original form, with an anathema against all the Arianizing parties. It only remained for the emperor to complete the work of the council. An edict in the middle of July forbade Arians of all sorts to build churches even outside cities, and at the end of the month Theodosius issued an amended definition of orthodoxy. The true faith was henceforth to be guarded by the demand of communion, no longer with Rome and Alexandria, but with Constantinople, Alexandria and the chief seas of the east, and the choice of cities is significant. A small place like Nyssa might be included for the personal eminence of its bishop, but the omission of Hadrianople, Perinthus, Ephesus and Nicomedia shows the determination to leave a clear field for the supremacy of Constantinople. So far as numbers went, the cause of Arianism was not hopeless even yet. It was fairly strong in Asia, could raise dangerous riots in Constantinople, and had on its side the western empress mother Justina. But its fate was only a question of time. Its cold logic generated no fiery enthusiasm. Its recent origin allowed no venerable traditions to grow up round it, and its imperial claims cut it off from any appeal to provincial feeling. So when the last overtures of Theodosius fell through in 383, Arianism soon ceased to be a religion in the civilized world. Such existence as it kept up for the next three hundred years was due to its barbarian converts. End of section 16